Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephanie Hatak, a host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Linda Lagarde-Grover about her book, Gichigami Hearts, Stories and Histories from Misabi Kong. Linda Lagarde-Grover, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, can you begin about, with telling us a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it? I have... I have um, written other books, um, fiction, poetry, and essays, and they all have to do with Ojibwe life, history, culture, contemporary times in the Arrowhead region, which is kind of northeastern Minnesota and northern Wisconsin, maybe into the UP of of Michigan, that whole area there. I started researching experiences of people who had gone to Indian boarding schools when I was working on my dissertation in the late 1990s. It's a while ago. And I, I, um, I was working on interviews on an interview project. And from that, from working on my dissertation, I, I never, I never really published, I never did publish my dissertation. It was, um, it was actually really difficult work because of the content. And I began to write fiction, poetry, and, and essays too. And so eventually then that is where Gichigami Hearts comes in. It is a, it is a kind of an interweaving of memoir, I guess, my, my own story, but also the story of my family, the communities around here, the native communities, but also, you know, with having to do with the non-natives too. I mean, we're, um, I, I live in, on the tip of, of Lake Superior here and we're ringed by like six or eight reservations all within driving distance and our, our stories are all interwoven. So with this with this memoir, collective memoir story, also comes then some poetry that I've written and some um, some essay, and uh, at least one fiction piece in the book that kind of connects some of the old, some aspects of a very old story with life in more contemporary times. Gichigami Hearts blends folklore with memoir. How did you decide which folk tales to include in the book to support and enhance your essays? As I've as I've been writing and living, <laughs> existing, it it occurred to me over a long period of time that the the really old foundational stories, what we might call the creation stories of how the world came to be and how it came to be the way it is as we live on it, are people do talk about the stories as being 
being living stories and that they are they are um, our foundation and our in our guide for living today the good life the mino bimadaziwan of the Ojibwe people but it occurred to me after I as I was giving this a lot of thought and observation that the stories do teach us our history are how to act, how to be, how to be a good Anishinaabe, sometimes how not to be, but that they also, I've come to believe, are being relived as, as we, you know, as we, as we speak and as we breathe today. And so that is, that is, you know, selecting which stories, I think it just kind of, um, uh, what would you call it, happened organically, I guess, as what I, when I was writing that these are what I am seeing as being not parallel, not even interwoven, but I mean, as close, as close as your own skin, I guess, to the, you know, their, the ancientness of the stories and our, and our lives today. Can you tell me a little about how the folklore traditions of your community um, influenced you as a writer? Well, we call them we call them the stories, and so they are they are there to guide us. And so you know, from you know, from a long time ago, I was I was taught that they are they are there to you know to um, to show us a way and show us how to how to how to be how to be a, a good a good person, a good Anishinaabe person. And so that has certainly influenced my writing. You know, it's, um, you know, it's a, what would they, what do they say? Life is a journey, not a destination, that saying. And so none of us, you know, none of us ever actually can say, oh yes, I have achieved perfection here. <laughs> Everyone use, use my example. That isn't how it is. So we're, we're learning all the time. And I, 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 I think that this learning probably goes on before, um, probably before we were ever born, and and after after you know our our spirit has left our body too, and so yeah, it's um, it is um, it is something to to keep in mind and to and to be your guide as as you go through life. We certainly you know we have um, we've always looked to the to the elders, to the, to the older people who have a lot of experience in life and, um, and have taught us by their example and by, by what they have told us. And, you know, that is, that has been a guide in what we're doing too. So, you know, older people that I've known, mostly relatives have certainly guided me as in my life. And then it turns out, you know, certainly in, in writing. In the chapter, Rain, Ghost, Fog, Spider, you write that Ojibwe believe that all that happens was meant to be. Have you always been drawn toward writing? And when did you realize that you were meant to share these stories with a wider audience? I started writing little stories when I was in elementary school, I think. And, I, um, and I've written, you know, sporadically, you know, over many years, I didn't write much when I was when I became an adult. And when I did, I never saved anything I'd done. It wasn't really until I went back to school and, um, and was working on on my dissertation, actually, and I was I was in my um, my late forties by that point, that I started really saving what I had been writing. And 
started sending a poem out here and there to, you know, to magazines and literary journals and stuff. And, um, and eventually I started getting, getting things published. And so, um, so now I save, now I save things. Of course, we, um, I started at that point, saving things on little scraps of paper and hanging on to them. And now, of course, we have, you know, we have computers. So I, I have a lot of stuff saved on, on my laptop because I might want to write about it. I, um, I, I think that I, I think there's a need to give a great deal of thought before, before I send anything out that I have written, because the, the stories themselves and our, and our history, everybody's life stories and experiences, you know, are, uh, they're, uh, um, they're a sacred thing. And, you know, like life itself, it's not, you know, it's, there's a lot of great gifts there that have been provided you know, by, by the creator, by God, the great spirit for us, but they're not there to just be used, used up there. Um, they're there to be carefully, carefully, um, approached in, in one's life. And that's how I approach, approach writing things too. Very good. Uh, in the chapter listening and remembering by heart, you mentioned that Ojibwe have an oral tradition of telling specific stories at specific times of the year. Can you tell us a little about that tradition and its significance? The stories about the creation of the world, and that includes just a whole lot of them, um, are um, they're told in the winter time. And winter time, the way the way I've learned it, is when there's when there's snow when there's snow on the ground. And it really is the responsibility of the person sharing the story to to um to follow that it's out of um it's respectful to um sometimes it's the animals and birds and the earth that the stories are told about and so it's when the when the earth is sleeping or when the animals are sleeping or gone for the winter that these stories are told and it is it is um it's a it's a greatly honored part of our tradition and so it's something that I, um, that I keep. I mean, I certainly, I, you know, if I tell a story, it's, you know, if I sit here and recount a story, it is during the winter time when there's snow on the ground. There are other stories though. I mean, you know, there are romances and ghost stories and funny stories and, you know, recountings of history and things that, you know, are, you know, can be shared any time during the year. It's not that something terrible is going to happen to you if you do not respect this tradition, but it's so important to respect respect things that were handed down by our elders because they they did the same thing and our handing them down hand, handing these ways of being down is how we how we um, how we continue as Anishinaabe people. In the chapter Woods, lovely, dark, and deep, you share the importance of hitting each point in a story at the place that point is designed to be, and how that is considered more important than simply memorizing a story. How has that practice influenced you as a professional writer? When a person shares one of the one of the sacred stories, that person has heard it many times, listened to it many times, and understands that understands 
there's a feeling for at what point things happen. And so that is an that is as important in carrying on the tradition as the story itself. And so it's more than memorizing. And every um, every person telling a story may have the own, you know their own way of telling or sometimes their own um, embellishments, especially the funnier parts that some of the stories are funny and sad and scary and you know all at the same time. But um, and but the basic elements must must always be there and at that point in the story. And so it's it's keeping a tradition. So how how to integrate that into one's own writing, whether it's the whether it's the the sacred stories themselves, or a or a an essay, or a poem, or um, a a fiction a piece of fiction that may have elements of one of the old stories in that others who read it may or may not recognize. I think that it is important to be mindful of that rhythm of telling of telling and recounting. Very good. In reading Rain, Ghost, Fog, Spider, I was moved by your interactions with Artel and his story. Can you share a little about Artel and how the power of shared stories and traditions strengthened your connection with him? Artel appeared one day um, and that's at the beginning, the beginning of this story. Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? It's, uh, well, it's nonfiction. Um, he appeared one day and it was, you know, something that was one of those things that's meant to be. And he was, you know, he was, he was cold and he was wet and he had walked a long way and wanted, wanted to talk with me and to give me something. And so, he is the person who decided to initiate this, this long walk and this, this conversation. He knew that I had been, I mean, this is Indian country. And so people, people talk a lot and, and information goes along, you know, between friends and along, you know, I don't know if they still call it the moccasin telegraph, but that's, that's a term that used to be used. And he came and he, he told me that he, he, he'd heard that I was, that I was doing some research and that I was writing about Indian boarding schools and he wanted to talk with me. And so I, um, I was, done with everything with my dissertation I was getting ready to present it they used to call it defending it but I'm not defending anything um, I was ready I was ready to talk about it with the the committee that would decide if it was acceptable or not and whether they did or not wouldn't change this a bit um, and so it was it was one of those times where all a person can do is just kind of continue breathing and go along, go along with it. I mean, certainly I would never have said, well, I'm actually all done with that, but let me take some notes. I mean, that wasn't it at all. This was a, this was a, um, this was a very important occasion that was just a, a gift, you know, dropped, dropped on us for, by, by the creator and by, by this man who was so generous. And so, Without him, my dissertation and my existence as a human being would not be what they are. As your book wraps up, you share an email exchange about your grandfather, Elias, and pose the question of who owns our stories. 
How do you approach that question in the context of folklore and family histories? Our stories are sacred stories. I mean, nobody owns them. Then actually nobody knows them all. So, um, and I, and that's a good thing. And that is, that is by design of the, of the creator. No one person knows the whole thing. There are some people who know quite a number of these stories. There are some who might know one or a couple, and maybe people haven't really heard them before, but altogether between the people who are caring for these stories and understand the, the tremendous gift and responsibility, um, and, and the listeners too, there is, um, there is a, um, there's a, there is a holiness about this in the, the passing of, the passing of this knowledge is how I think of it. In, in writing about my grandfather who had a really, really difficult life. And my family was a boarding school family. And so for uh, two or three generations, it was, it, was, um, it was common, it was expected, it was what happened. It grew to be what, what we were and what we are, I think, that children would be removed from home and sent far enough away that they couldn't get home and they would be schooled after a fashion. And it was, you know, most of the time it was really, lousy schooling anyway, combined with combined with treatment that was um, indifferent, and sometimes even cruel, and sometimes very um, the um, the assimilation of these children into larger American society, which involved changing them in every way. I mean, they could not practice their religious beliefs or their, um, their, pra- their, their customs. They were not allowed to speak their, their own language. They had to speak English. They had to live in a regimented style that was so different from, from everything they'd ever known. And yet at home, people were being squeezed to send their children away. I mean, there were communities where, um, you know, like um, on reservations where government commodity foods were being shipped in to people who no longer lived in the type of, um, were were not able to live in the the, um, sustenance lifestyle that they had before. So they were being able, you know, sent commodity food. Only enough was sent in some communities for everybody over 18 which meant that there was no food, not enough food to feed children, um, things like this. And people were told, um, and I've heard this many times, and I've heard this even in my own, own family, that people were told, you cannot do this. You cannot raise your children. This is, this is gone. Everything, everything you knew is gone, and it's just as well. It's gone, and you're, you can't save yourself. You're stuck in that old time that's no longer relevant but one thing you can do is save your children and we're going to take them and then your children will survive and i i think my god what a what an awful thing to have to put into your mind and your heart as a as a parent or grandparent or community person and so when i when i think about my grandfather and the the tremendous difficulties he had and yet his and in the book I, I wrote that yes actually he still he 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 shone I mean he shone with the light that it was beyond beyond um what had what had the the terrible blanket of assimilation that had been tossed on to us and so I I write about that a lot it was so it, and that was one of life's experiences too where I um 
received an email from somebody from a woman just saying that she um, was I Linda was I Linda Lagarde um, related to Elias because she had known him when she was a girl, a young woman, and um, and she's my age. And I thought, oh, there's more to this. And I just, I really hesitated. I was, was I afraid of what she might tell me or something? I, I sort of lost her email and didn't know. And then book, I do write about this, that I thought, you know what, I'm going to put it on Facebook, a long shot. Does anybody know this woman? Didn't remember her name. (laughs) And she um, said she couldn't sleep one night and opened up her Facebook and this, kind of popped up on her on her Facebook feed. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? And so then she contacted me again, and that's how we got together. And that was something, you know, often they talk about closing the circle and coming full circle and healing and stuff. I don't really necessarily believe in that. And yet, at this point, going for a cup of tea just on the edge of the pandemic, when we wouldn't be able to meet anymore, we met just before everything hit the fan. And, um, and we, we spent those hours together. And I thought to myself that this is, I don't know if it's full circle, but it is, it is a large piece of the puzzle that came to fit in, in what, I, what I know of, um, of a greatly loved grandfather who left the world in really sad circum, you know, under very sad circumstances. Do you have a favorite folk tale that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, of the stories, I, um, my favorite story actually has to do with um, Gagoons, the little porcupine, and, um, and how he, um, he kept his he kept his gentle nature, and with the help of Nanabuju, our great spirit hero, um, was um, able to defend himself, yet still remain a a peaceable and good being. And that's my that's my very favorite story. So I I I, I don't know. I just I I really enjoy that, and I um, I also enjoy putting my own little spin on a couple couple little parts of it where Nanabuju is um all right in my t- my part of this as in a little aside here Nanabuju is going to teach him how to box oh. so <laughs> that wasn't actually part of the traditional story but but the the pondering over how to defend oneself was oh, great I like it okay and now for our final question where can readers purchase this wonderful book and where can they learn more about you and your work well you know if you just um do an internet search, you'll probably probably find me. Um, Gitchigami Hearts is um, is carried in some independent bookstores in the region here. It can be purchased online from the University of Minnesota Press and um, in our Barnes and Noble up here in Duluth carries it. And it has been very recently selected to be the, um, the 2022 um, Northland, Northland Read for the, the regions up here, the libraries. And so, yeah, so it is it is available. It's, it is it is in paperback, which I really like because it makes it an affordable and accessible book. And I have to just say, I really love the cover because the cover has a black 
background with beadwork beadwork on it and it is an actual photo of beadwork done by Jessica Goki who is a bead artist from um, northern Wisconsin. All right well we've taken a lot of your time today and I really appreciate you being here with us. Uh, Dr. Grover it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Um, I, I appreciate this too thank you. Mm -hmm.